Greetings, everyone. As we discuss in the future when the kingdom of God will supersede the kingdoms of this world, and Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the second person of the Godhead, will rule on earth personally under the authority of the Father in heaven. And as I mentioned, there are many prophecies in the Bible that give us insight into what the world will be like under the rule of Christ as opposed to what it is like now and up to the present. And in a previous sermon, we discussed an, an end to oppression, a just government, end to war, peace and harmony among races and nations as differences that will occur at that time as opposed to today's world. And I want to continue along that theme today with some more specific differences. As I said, many of these could be a sermon in and of itself, but I want to spend several sermons actually highlighting some of these things, summarizing them in a, in a sense, and we'll do that additionally today with some specific ways in which the world will be different when Christ returns and establishes his government on the earth. Another difference besides the ones we've discussed before, and, and again, these are interrelated and so overlap in certain respects, but the fifth difference of the list that I've put together here is a stable government, a stable government. A sufficiently strong and stable government is essential to the well-being of the people of a nation or other political entity. Yet human governments are inherently subject to the weaknesses and limitations of human beings. There are many examples in history of how nations have suffered as a result of weak corrupt and unstable governments from an article entitled why is mexico's government so unstable by a man named bill federer we read this quote from 1821 to 1857 50 different governments ruled mexico now that that means that on average there was a new government in just under nine months over a period of 36 years. Going on, the article says, revolts and revolutions in Mexico usually began with class warfare where the poor were organized to overthrow the rich, but ended up with the revolutionary leaders themselves grabbing power and becoming dictators, end quote. In 1858, Benito Juarez became president of Mexico to be replaced by Maximilian I in 1864 with the backing of European powers. With the help of the United States, Maximilian was overthrown in 1867 and executed by Benito Juarez. Lerdo de Tiad succeeded Juarez upon his death, but in 1876, his government was overthrown by a revolt led by a man named Prof uh, Profirio Diaz. 
Diaz was in power from 1876 to 1911, perhaps most long-lived administration, at least of those that, that uh, were reviewed in this article. But then a revolt was instigated by Francisco Madero. The next decade after this revolt in 1911, the next decade saw a civil war in which millions in Mexico died and during which the government sought to crush the influence of the church and suppress dissent. More revolts and assassinations followed this period and more instability. In 1848, following the Mexican-American War, the United States purchased 525,000 square miles of territory from Mexico under the Treaty of Guadalupe, uh, Guadalupe Hidalgo. And the article states, quote, since the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, there developed a stark contrast in the health safety and economic status of the land north of the border and the land south of the border. In other words, the United States and Mexico. Goes on to say this is most obvious when comparing border cities. And he lists the following cities, San Diego, Tijuana, which are directly across the border from one another, El Paso, Juarez, Laredo, Nuevo Laredo, Brownsville, Matamoros, McAllen, Reynosa. Now, I don't know how many of you have been to any of these cities that lie directly across the border from one another, one on the, the American side and one on the Mexican side, but there is a marked contrast between those cities immediately as you cross the border. And the poverty, the much lower standard of living is obvious as you cross the border. The article goes on to say, during the same period of time that Mexico has had several dozen different governments, the United States, other than the period of the Civil War, has had only one. As both sides of the border have similar climate, geography, plants, and in many cases, a similar cultural racial makeup, reasons for the disparity must lie deeper, end quote. And there are other reasons of disparity for the disparity between the United States and Mexico in terms of wealth and prosperity, the most significant of which is the blessing of Abraham. But unstable governments generally do not produce the best of possible outcomes for a nation or its peoples. One of the blessings that God has given to the United States and other Israelitish nations such as Great Britain and Northwest European nations and so forth in the past 200 or more years is, a relatively, is relatively stable governments. Most of the countries in Sub-Saharan Africa since the colonial period have had unstable governments, which is one reason why they remain among the poorest countries in the world. Would you really like to live in a country that has a different government every few months? In the United States, we elect a new House of Representatives every two years. Senators serve six-year terms, a third of which expire every two years. So we have essentially a new Congress every two years, or at least a different one. 
president serve four-year terms and may be reelected under current law no more than once for a total of eight years in office. So although the government of the United States in a sense remains the same, policies even in a democratic republic like the United States may change significantly from one election cycle to the next. So how much can you really count on under living under such a system? How much consistency in terms of policy in many ways that affect your life directly, how much can you really count on? We might ask, is democracy really the best form of government, as many Americans believe? Quoting from this same article, it says, between 1833 and 1855, the Mexican presidency changed hands at least 36 times. With Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana ruling 11 of those. Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, styling himself after Napoleon, laid aside Mexico's constitution in 1835, dissolved the Congress, and declared himself dictator. Santa Ana had previously told the U.S. Minister to Mexico, Joel R. Poinsett, in 1824, quote, I threw up my cap for liberty with great ardor, but very soon found the folly of it. A hundred years to come, my people will not be fit for liberty. They do not know what it is, enlightened as they are. A despotism is the proper government for them. End quote. Now, the United States was established as a reaction against what was regarded as a despotic government. Yet the founders of the American Republic were suspicious of democracy and established the nation as a republic with limited suffrage, that is, limited voting rights. Under the Constitution of the United States, there was a division of power in the federal government Enumerated rights were guaranteed to the citizens, and other rights and powers were vested in the states. So the government was deliberately, the, the authority in the government was deliberately divided in several different respects. The founders of this nation never intended the United States to be a pure democracy, which is probably one reason why it's lasted so long. However, with the expansion of voting rights, the United States has become more democratic and more susceptible to the inherent weaknesses of democracies. One of the most significant weaknesses of a democracy is the tendency toward mob rule. Masses can on occasion be easily swayed by clever politicians who know how to appeal to their desires and prejudices. The word demagogue is from, a, is from Greek words for the people and leader. So demagogue, the word demagogue, means essentially just someone who leads the people. And demagogues can gain popularity by whipping up passions and appealing to people's emotions in ways that are deceptive and destructive. Adolf Hitler was appointed chancellor of Germany after his party had become the largest party in the German Reichstag as a result of a democratic election. 
in Italy on October 30th, 1922, after a round of elections, brought the fascist party the majority of the vote, Benito Mussolini became prime minister of Italy. So both Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini started out as democratically appointed politicians after which they abolished democracy in their respective countries and became dictators and then led their countries into a destructive war called World War II. Another major weakness of democracies is the tendency for politicians to overpromise to get elected, which inevitably leads to overspending and eventual insolvency or national bankruptcy. This is a quote from an article entitled The Weaknesses of Democracy by James Hearn. And he says, quote, the sheer nature of Western democracies have an inbuilt self-destructive component. Nowhere is this more obvious than in the burgeoning welfare and health budgets of Western societies, the two sacred cows of Western democracies. These ever-expanding budgets win votes. All Western governments have massive unfunded liabilities which are unsustainable in the long run, end quote. So within democracies are inevitably the seeds of their own destruction. These are just two of the leading weaknesses of democracies, but they have within them the seeds of their own destruction, as does every human government, as we will see. It's been suggested that an enlightened monarchy or despotism is the best form of government. Many scholars have suggested that. Perhaps the first trick is finding a truly enlightened monarch. And even if you do that, finding one who can successfully implement policies that serve the best interests of the governed, rather than, you might say, special interests, whose interests are inimical to the interests of the majority. Even if one is found, there's no guarantee that his style of administration will outlast him. And as we know, humans are mortal. Well, there are a number of good examples of that in the Bible. Solomon was a wise king. But Solomon, despite his wisdom, did some very foolish things. And he wrote in Ecclesiastes 2 and verse 18, Ecclesiastes 2 and verse 18, Then I hated all my labor which I had toiled, uh, in which I had toiled under the sun, because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will rule over all my labor in which I have toiled and in which I have shown myself wise under the sun. This is also vanity. History is full of examples of kings who were successful and accomplished, at least in some senses, great things and then were succeeded by fools who basically oversaw the destruction of everything that had been accomplished. And Solomon was no different. Solomon himself had acted foolishly in building pagan places of worship in Jerusalem, much to the displeasure of God. And for that sin, he was told that his heir would lose the kingdom, except for the tribe of Judah. 
and as it turned out, Benjamin, most of the tribe of Levi. And this occurred shortly after Solomon's death when his son Rehoboam made a decision which led to the revolt of 10 of the 13 tribes of Israel. We read about 1 Kings chapter 12, 1 Kings 12, verse 3. Then Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the burdensome service of your father and his heavy yoke which he put on us, and we will serve you. So he said to them, Depart for three days, then come back to me. And the people departed. Then it goes on, verse 12, 1 Kings 12, it says, So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king had directed, saying, Come back to me the third day. Then the king answered the people roughly and rejected the advice which the elders had given him. And he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, My father, make your yoke heavy, but my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. So the king did not listen to the people. Before the turn of events was from the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord had spoken by Ahiah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. Now when all, the, all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, saying, What share have we in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse, that means David's descendant, in this case, Rehoboam. To your tents, O Israel, now see to your own house, O David. So Israel departed to their tents. And so the United Kingdom of Israel was divided into two kingdoms, the Northern Kingdom of Israel, consisting of the ten tribes, and then the southern kingdom of Judah, consisting of Judah and Benjamin and most of the Levites. So what David had spent his life putting together with God's direction and intervention, what Solomon had built all um, essentially came to pieces under their successors. Hezekiah is an example of an enlightened and righteous king over Judah. In 2 Kings 18, verse 1, we read about Hezekiah. Now it came to pass in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned uh, 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him none was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. The Lord was with him. He prospered wherever he went. So here was a king who reigned for 29 years. Now there were some trials and problems during his reign, but for the most part, 
it was a very uh, peaceful and prosperous reign. And Judah uh, was uh, at peace most of that time, or at least was protected by God and prospered in what they endeavored to do. And the nation did well under his rule. When he died, he was succeeded by his son Manasseh. Now here's what it says about Manasseh in 2 Kings 21 and verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. I believe this is probably the longest reign of any of the kings of Judah, 55 years. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. Goes on in 2 Kings 21 verse 9 to say Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And the Lord spoke by his servants the prophets saying, because Manasseh king of Judah has done these abominations, he has acted more wickedly than all the Amorites who were before him and has also made Judah to sin with his idols Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such calamity upon Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. So I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance, deliver them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become victims of plunder to all their enemies because they have done evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt even to this day, end quote. So <clears throat> whatever good came from the reign of righteous king Hezekiah was undone by his son Manasseh and God pronounced calamity upon the nation because of his, his wickedness. Now contrast these examples with the reign of Jesus Christ and what the Bible tells us about it. When Jesus Christ establishes his government on the earth, it will not only be a just government, it will be a stable, lasting government. His government will be a hierarchical government in which Jesus Christ will be ruling as king, having authority over all others. But others will be ruling with him under his direction and authority. And the authority in the government will be aimed at serving the needs of the people ruled by that government, according to the judgment of the all-wise God who created the heavens and the earth. We read in Daniel 7 and verse 13, Daniel 7 and verse 13, I was watching in the night visions and behold one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, the one 
which shall not be destroyed. Now, in terms of stable government, it doesn't get much more stable than that. <laughs> it goes on to say in verse 27 of Daniel 7, the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom, that is the kingdom of God, is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. So it's an everlasting kingdom. Revelation 11, verse 15, we read, Revelation 11, verse 15, the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. In Psalm 72 and verse 1, Psalm 72 and verse 1, we read, Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to, to the king's sons, or son. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. The mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing like showers that water the earth. In his days, the righteous shall flourish in abundance of peace until the moon is no more. Psalm 72 and verse 17, it says, His name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun. And Isaiah 51 and verse 6 says, Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look on the earth beneath. For the heavens shall vanish away like smoke. The earth will grow old like a garment. And those who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever and my righteousness will not be abolished listen to me you who know righteousness you who you people in whose heart is my law do not fear the reproach of men nor be afraid of their insults for the moth will eat them up like a garment and the worm will eat them like wool but my righteousness will be forever and my salvation from generation to generation. In Psalm 45, verse 6, seems like this is uh, something God wants to uh, place quite a bit of emphasis on because it's repeated many times in the scriptures. Psalm 45, verse 6, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. In Psalm 145, beginning with verse 1, we read, Psalm 140, uh, 145, verse 1, I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Verse 10, it goes on to say, All your works shall praise you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. 
They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord upholds all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look expectantly to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will hear their cry. Uh, he will uh, hear their cry and save them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh shall see his or shall bless his holy name forever and ever. So God's government, once it's established on the earth, will be stable, lasting, and it will indeed last forever, for eternity, in fact. And there will be many blessings that will flow from that stability and predictability. Another difference between today's world and the world under Jesus Christ's direct rule is that there will be predictable and favorable weather and abundant produce for all. the fortunes of men will no longer be subject to the vicissitudes of changes in the weather. One of the sources of calamity for mankind throughout recorded history is unfavorable weather. War and inept governments are actually frequent causes of famine. And there are several countries, in fact, in the world today facing famine as a direct result of warfare and dysfunctional governments. However, untold millions have died down through the ages as a result of drought and resultant famine. Many more thousands and millions of people have died as a result of other weather-related calamities, such as hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, and so forth. Even today, there are ongoing droughts and famines in various parts of the world. This is from an article published in July of 2017. Quote, it says, as Yemen, South Sudan, and parts of Northeast Nigeria are already officially facing famine, in what the UN is calling the worst humanitarian crisis since World War II. Neighboring countries also find themselves increasingly at risk. Now neighboring Ethiopia, Kenya, and Somalia could fall into famine as early as 2018 due to another year of below average rainfall. The drought has left harvests bare, killed livestock, and forced many to leave their nomadic lifestyles and flee to in informal communities where water and food are available. These three countries are now experiencing what, what's called a phase three food crisis, 
according to the famine early warning systems networks five-tier scale. According to the FEWS network, Ethiopia and Somalia are on track to reach phase four acute food insecurity by 2018. By that same year, Somalia could reach phase five full-fledged famine. That's from an article entitled, These African Countries May Fall Into Famine in 2018. There are also ongoing famines in parts of Asia as well. God promised Israel that if they would obey his commandments, Deuteronomy 28, verse 12, if they would obey his commandments, he said, the Lord will open to you his good treasure, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hand, end quote. Now, these blessings will apply especially to the peoples, not only of Israel, but other nations as well after Jesus Christ returns as they begin to practice God's way of life. In Isaiah 30, Isaiah 30 and verse 22, it says, and this is speaking of the people of Israel specifically after their return from captivity, you will also defile the covering of your graven images of silver and the ornament of your molded images of gold. You will throw them away as an unclean thing. You will say to them, get away. Then he will give the rain for your seed with which you sow the ground and the bread of the increase of the earth. It will be fat and plentiful. In that day, your cattle will feed in large pastures. Ezekiel 34 and verse 26, Ezekiel 34 and verse 26, it says, I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing. I will cause showers to come down in their season. There shall be showers of blessing. Then the trees of the field shall yield their fruit and the earth shall yield her increase. They shall be safe in their land and they shall know that I am the Lord when I have broken the bands of their yoke and delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them. Going on in verse 29 of Ezekiel 36, it says, I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your fields so that you need never again to bear the reproach of famine among the nations. In Joel 2, Joel 2 and verse 18, it says, Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you a re reproach among the nations. In verse 21 of Joel 2, it says, Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. Do not be afraid, you beasts of the field, for the open pastures are springing up, and the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the former rain faithfully, and he will cause the rain to come down for you, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. And this is speaking of uh, 
the climate in Palestine in particular, where there was a former rain and a, a, a early rainy season and a later rainy season, which were depended upon for the crops to grow. In verse 24, it says, the threshing floors will be, will be full of wheat and the vats shall overflow with new wine and oil. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust, the great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people will never be put to shame. In Psalm 65 verse 5, Psalm 65, verse 5, it says, By awesome deeds done in righteousness, you will answer us, O God of our salvation, you who are the confidence of all the ends of the earth and of the far-off seas. So these blessings will be coming not just upon Israel, but others as well. <clears throat> you are the confidence of all the ends of the earth and of the far-off seas who established the mountains by his strength, being clothed with power. You who still the noise of the seas, the noise of their waves and the tumult of the peoples, they also who dwell in the farthest parts are afraid of your signs. You make the outgoings of the morning and evening rejoice. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain for so you have prepared it. You water its ridges abundantly. You settle its furrows. You make it soft with showers. You bless its growth. You crown the year of your goodness and your paths drip with abundance. They dri uh, drop on the pastures of the wilderness and the little hills rejoice on every side. The pastures are clothed with flocks. The valleys also are covered with grain. They shout for joy. They also sing. In Isaiah 35 verse 1, Isaiah 35, verse 1, it says, The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to, the, to it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellence of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful-hearted, be strong and do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap, leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb sing. For waters shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground will become a pool in the thirsty land springs of water in the habitation of jackals where each lay there shall be grass with reeds and rushes a highway shall be there and a road and it shall be called the highway of holiness the unclean shall not pass over it but it shall be for others whoever walks the road although a fool shall not go astray no lion shall be there nor shall any ravenous beast go up on it it shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away.
When Jesus Christ establishes his rule, he will put an end to famine. There will be no want from lack of food, no drought, but rather rain in due season. There will be an abundance of food and all that human beings need to thrive and prosper will be provided. The government and its policies will be stable and predictable. It will rule from one generation to the next forever to the benefit of mankind. There will be no revolutions, no rebellions, no civil wars, no unpredictable changes to upset and ruin people's lives. Instead, there will be peace, abundance, and stability. These are additional blessings that we can look forward to when Jesus Christ reigns on the earth.